Hello and welcome to the History of Grob. Episode 4, The Line of Succession. The reign of King Magnificent I of Grob lasted from 1520 BC to 1480 BC. Of course, Grob is not and never has been a Christian nation, so we should more properly use the traditional Grobian calendar, in which case the 39-year reign of King Magnificent lasted from year 1 of King Magnificent's reign to year 39 of King Magnificent's reign. Clearly, this calendar system has its own particular weaknesses, so in future I'll stick with BC and AD. As we heard in the last episode, Magnificent I was a powerful but divisive figure, a king who ruled through a combination of fear and confusion, always wrong-footing potential rivals and loyal subjects alike, with his unique brand of unpredictable authority. Every legal dispute brought before him was resolved by cutting a baby in half, regardless of whether this would solve the problem or not. Artists and writers were commissioned to create works in tribute to him, only for the king to receive them with open scorn, saying things like, I'm actually far uglier than that, and you forgot to mention me killing all those babies. After his death, a religious cult formed around the posthumous worship of King Magnificent. Groups of worshippers would pray to him, recount stories of his many accomplishments in life, and sing his praises in lavish terms. This lasted until they were absolutely sure he was dead. The late king had been known to test the loyalty of his subjects by pretending to be dead and seeing what they said about him as well as by telling them to close their eyes and then pushing them over. In one famous test of loyalty, King Magnificent led his closest advisers to the ocean's edge and told them that he would command the waves to do his bidding. After a full three hours of him screaming obscenities at rock pools, some of his advisers tried to leave. He called them back, saying, What lesson have you learned? Glancing at one another, they replied that maybe it was something about how even mighty kings are bound by the laws of nature. He said that no, the lesson they had learned was that if you try to leave early, you get drowned. He then drowned them. So, as a symbol of Grobian nationalism, King Magnificent I is far from perfect. At various points in history, attempts have been made to rehabilitate his reputation, with later kings and politicians praising his bold and decisive leadership in an era when a strong king was needed to bind the various tribes of Grob into one nation. However, there's only so much you can do to rehabilitate the image of someone who killed that many babies, so these brief moments of national pride usually come to nothing. The one tradition that does remain to this day is the winter solstice gathering at the ocean's edge, where thousands of ordinary people come together to swear ferociously at the sea. According to custom, anyone who tries to leave early gets drowned, although these days that usually just ends up as a massive water fight. At the time of King Magnificent's death, there was no established system of succession. Grob needed a king, though, so the religious elders quickly got to work. After much discussion and argument, it was decided that the most important quality in a ruler was the ability to defeat all opponents and keep the kingdom safe. Therefore, the obvious choice for the next monarch would be whoever killed Magnificent I, as they had helped to protect the kingdom from a serial baby murderer who just happened to be the previous king. So, only days after Magnificent's death, the elders of Grob performed an ancient and mystical ceremony, which they had to hastily invent when they realised that people expected something ancient and mystical, to crown the killer of the previous king as their new king. This might sound like quite a straightforward way of doing things, but the particular circumstances of the former king's death did complicate matters slightly. 
Magnificent I had died after being bitten by a snake, which he stepped on whilst going to the toilet in the middle of the night. The new laws of succession were duly followed, and it quickly became apparent that whilst it had been quite effective as a venomous reptile, the snake made for a poor king. The first hint that King Snake I might not have been the ideal candidate came at his coronation, when the crown slid over his head, down his body and onto the floor. The priest who bent over to pick it up was bitten by the new king and died shortly afterwards. In the end, the reign of King Snake I lasted only three months, at which point a clumsy farmer trod on his head by accident and killed him. The proper mourning period was observed, and it was generally agreed that the snake had been a marginally better king than Magnificent I, albeit a bit hands-off. As the killer of King Snake I, the clumsy farmer was crowned at a ceremony shortly afterwards to become King Susan of Grob. When King Susan pointed out that she was a woman and shouldn't there be a different title like Queen Susan, she was told that it didn't work that way and she would have to be King Susan because they weren't doing the ceremony again, particularly as it had gone a lot better this time with no one getting bitten and the crown staying on and everything. Over time, she became known as King Susan the Woman and everyone was, if not happy exactly, then at least clear about the king's sex. By all accounts, King Susan the Woman was a shrewd and thoughtful ruler with a particular skill for problem-solving. After the coronation, her first order of business was to reform the succession laws that had brought her to the throne. Her two predecessors had both met with unfortunate fates, and, though the religious elders seemed just happy that some kind of precedent had been established, Susan wasn't keen to end her reign with someone biting her in the toilet or standing on her head. She did, however, have two sons, Hugo and David, both of whom she thought would make excellent kings. So she suggested that the crown should be passed down to the eldest child, unless the eldest child had failed to either eat all his vegetables or clean his room, in which case it should be passed to the second eldest child, and so on. The priests agreed to this, on the condition that they could still perform an ancient and mystical ceremony of their choosing when a new king was crowned. King Susan the Woman reigned for 25 peaceful years, and at the time of her death, David and Hugo were 38 and 36 respectively. Seeing an opportunity to seize the throne, Hugo arranged for two tons of horse manure to be dumped in his older brother's room. Knowing that if he couldn't manage to clean his room before the coronation he would forfeit the crown, David got to work. While he was doing this, however, Hugo was busy transporting ten sacks of cabbages to David's house and setting them out on his dining table. No sooner had David finished cleaning his bedroom than his younger brother pointed out the huge pile of uneaten vegetables in the next room. Knowing that the kingship of Grob was at stake, David tried to eat all the cabbages, but soon grew nauseated and stumbled back into the bedroom to throw up, thus making another job for himself. In the end, and after a heroic effort of will, David was able to eat all his vegetables and clean his room before the coronation. But the priests decided that they didn't want a king who stank of cabbage and was covered in sick, so Hugo was crowned instead. He became known as King Hugo the Sneaky, the fourth king of Grob whose reign we have a record of, and the first king of Grob not to be either a woman, a snake, or a baby-killing maniac. In this sense, he can be considered a successful monarch in the traditional mode, leading Grob through several decades of prosperous growth. His brother, on the other hand, became known as David Cabbage Vomit, and lived out the rest of his days in the shadow of his brother the king. After some initial difficulty, he married and had six children, 
passing on both his insulting nickname and his deep-seated resentment to a new generation of cabbage vomits. The surname has survived to this day, and the cabbage vomits remain one of Grob's oldest and most respected aristocratic families, albeit the butt of some rather unkind jokes even after 3,500 years. Some things are just too embarrassing to let go. So, to take stock of our situation. The year is around 1450 BC. In the form of Hugo, Grob has a king who is capable and ambitious, as well as being more than a little devious, not a bad quality for a king to have. Agriculturally, Grob is flourishing, with a well-established area of farmland and grazing pastures. The settlement of Smeldon can now properly be called a city, with a population in excess of 30,000 people. The nation's babies have never been safer, and its elders seem content to while away their hours inventing elaborate religious rituals that serve no obvious purpose. Overall, the picture is idyllic. Grob is a thriving, growing, prosperous land. Or, to put it another way, an easy target for potential invaders. In next week's episode, we'll look at Grob's greatest challenge since its foundation, as this fledgling civilization is overrun by pillaging barbarians. How will King Hugo respond? Will he have the support of his estranged brother? What will survive the invasion? And how will the fundamental character of Grob be changed? All this and more in the next History of Grob. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Grob. If you enjoyed it, you might want to buy my book, 100 Ways to Write Badly Well. It's a guide to the art of terrible writing. You can get it from nastylittlepress.org or get the ebook from anywhere you normally get ebooks from.